0: Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 2. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of a Second writingasasecondcareer.com. Today, we're talking about season two, episode 13, surprise. It is the first of a two part storyline. In particular, I'll talk about the strong hooks in this episode that keep the audience coming back after commercial breaks and what you can learn from them about keeping your readers hooked the use of conflict to catch audience members up on major developments that haven't been mentioned in the last couple episodes, the fantastic dialogue here and how its wit and humor makes the danger and drama more intense by contrast, and how the plot points for the single episode interplay with those of the two-episode story arc— to keep the story moving and engaging. As always, there will be no spoilers, except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Surprise was written by Marty Noxon and directed by Michael Lang. Because it is the first part of a two-part story, which ends in innocence, we will get only to the midpoint of that story, and we'll pick up there next Monday. We start with our opening conflict. Buffy is in bed, but she wakes up during the night, seeming restless, and drinks some water. She goes out into the hall. Drusilla appears behind her, and Buffy doesn't notice. This seems like it is real until Buffy opens a door and goes into the bronze. She is still wearing a pair of shiny silk pajamas. The music is very mellow, and Willow is sitting at a high-top table. She gives Buffy a cheery wave, and she speaks French and has a monkey in front of her. Um, I have been working on my French during this uh, COVID-19 lockdown, but I'm sorry to say I'm not quite quick enough to catch anything about that other than something about pants, which makes me think of Oz's joke about the monkey being the only animal in the Animal Crackers who wears pants. At some point, I'll have to look up what Willow actually says there. Buffy sees Joyce, her mother, walks over to her. Joyce has a very large cup and saucer and she says, do you really think you're ready Buffy? Buffy says, what? Joyce drops the saucer and it breaks on the floor. Buffy seems a little disturbed but she sees Angel and smiles. They walk towards each other but from behind, Drusilla stakes him. Angel reaches toward Buffy. His hand almost touches her and two rings fall off of his finger as he turns to dust. Buffy says, Angel. And Drusilla says, Happy birthday, Buffy. Buffy wakes up. I think I mentioned before, there is an old saying, tell a dream, lose a reader. And the idea is that readers often don't appreciate being drawn drawn into something that turns out to be a dream and perhaps doesn't move the story forward. In Buffy, however, dreams are used to move the story. As we'll see, this dream will be key to much of what is happening in the early part of the story, and it creates conflict and tension. We are at 2 minutes, 22 seconds in, at the end of the dream, and we go to credits. Because we have already established that Buffy does have prophetic dreams, the fact that she sees Drusilla in her dream killing Angel is deeply disturbing to the audience, and it also lets us know that on some level, Buffy is perhaps aware that Drusilla is still alive, even though She and the others are hopeful that both Spike and Drusilla died in the church, something the characters will mention again later. When we come back from the credits, Buffy knocks on Angel's door and is making sure he's all right. She tells him about her dream and says that in it, Drusilla was alive and she killed you right in front of me. Angel reassures her that it's not real, but she says her dream about the master came true. This is the first instance of getting in a little exposition here through conflict, For any audience members who have missed this or missed that Buffy's dreams are sometimes prophetic, there's a reason for Buffy to say this because she's worried and Angel is, in reassuring her, also somewhat contradicting her. He says... Not every dream she has comes true and asks what else she dreamed last night. This is a great question to help Buffy calm down. She hesitates and says she dreamed that she and Giles opened an office supply warehouse in Vegas. I just love that because as a writer, I have just always been so fond of office supply stores and seeing the notebooks and pens and and way back, typewriter supplies. Normally, we would see our story spark or inciting incident here. It's what usually comes about 10% into any story, and it sets the main plot in motion. Because this is a two-part episode, I don't think that we see the overall two-episode story arc here, but it is interesting to me at 4 minutes 20 seconds in, we have Buffy saying, but what if Drusilla is alive? We never saw. Her body. And this is right about 10% into the episode. And it raises the central conflict here that Drusilla is, in fact, alive and is actively working on a plot. That will endanger not just Buffy and all of Sunnydale, but the world. Angel reassures Buffy on two levels, saying Drusilla is not alive, but if she is, we'll deal with it. We also have what we see at times in Buffy, dramatic irony. That is where the audience knows something that the characters do not. We know from a few episodes ago that Drusilla was in fact restored to her former strength by the rich so she is very powerful and that spike was injured but she got him out of the church Buffy starts saying what if again but Angel kisses her And we get the Buffy and Angel theme music. When they pause, he says, what if what? And Buffy says, I'm sorry, were we talking? She says she has to go to school. He says he knows, but instead they are kissing again. She goes to the door as if to leave, but shuts it and stays inside with Angel. He says she still hasn't told him what she wants for her birthday. Buffy says, surprise me. And Angel says, okay, I will. I never noticed this before, but in light of the end of this episode, this is heartbreaking and such a good use of the episode title we are moving toward the story spark for the two episode arc Buffy is having trouble leaving and breaking away from Angel she says she likes seeing him first time in the morning and he says it's bedtime for him Buffy says then I like seeing you at bedtime um um ha she gives this little laugh and says you know what I mean Angel smiles and says I think so what do you mean And Buffy says, I like seeing you. And the part at the end of the night where we say goodbye, it's getting harder. We switch to Willow at school. They're sitting on a bench outside. And she's a little in awe that Buffy said, I like seeing you at bedtime. That leads to them talking about sex. Buffy says she doesn't know what to do. Willow asks her what she wants, and Buffy says to act on want can be wrong. But what if she never feels this way again, encapsulating the dilemma at the entire heart of this episode and the Buffy-Angel relationship. Willow says, carpe diem, you told me that once. And Buffy says, fish of the day. Willow says, not carp, carpe, it means seize the day. Now we get our story spark in the next part of the scene. Buffy says, she thinks she and Angel are going to, that once you get to a certain point, seizing is sort of inevitable. And Willow says, wow, twice. Props to Allison Hannigan for how she is able to say the same word because she'll say it again after the commercial break with slightly different inflection each time. So after Buffy has said seizing is inevitable, we go to a commercial break. So this was about 8 minutes in and the two-episode arc would be about 88 minutes total. So right about that 10% through the story. Also, another great hook because... We now know that Buffy is thinking that she and Angel will make love for the first time. On return from the commercial break, Willow says wow again, and so we're right where we left. So notice while a break with a strong hook can be used to then come back with a brand new scene, it can also be used to break in the middle of the scene. Here it's a commercial break, in a novel it could be your chapter. So for pacing, you might want to break in the middle of the scene if you have something key like that. And the advantage is it will make it very difficult for readers to put down the book at that chapter break, which is a natural place to stop reading. Also, if it's a longer scene or like this one, a scene that is just two people talking, which sometimes can lack momentum if it goes on too long— You can increase the pace by breaking it at a strategic. So Buffy now says, speaking of wow, what about Oz? Any wow potential there? Willow says, I like his hands. And Buffy says, a fixation on insignificant detail is a definite crush sign. Which is, for some reason, a line I just really enjoy. Willow says she doesn't know Oz is a senior. And Buffy, in one of the first really funny lines in the episode, says, you think he's too old because he's a senior? Please, my boyfriend had a bicentennial. Willow is still waffling, and Buffy says, You can't spend the rest of your life waiting for Xander to wake up and smell the hottie. Make a move. Do the talking thing. But Willow is worried. She says, What if the talking thing becomes the awkward silence thing? And Buffy tells her she won't know unless she tries. Oz is sitting under a tree, strumming an electric guitar that's not plugged in, of course, because they're outside. They both say, Hey, Willow asks if his band has a gig, and he says, no, practice. And then says, see, our band's kind of moving toward this new sound where we suck, so practice. She thinks they sound good. They talk for a while. And then there is one of those awkward silences she was worried about. Oz tells her he's going to ask her to go out with him tomorrow night. And he's kind of nervous about it. Willow says, well, if it helps at all, I'm going to say yes. And Oz says, yeah, it helps. It creates a comfort zone. Do you want to go out with me tomorrow night? Willow puts her hand to her head and says, oh, I can't. And Oz says, well, see, I like that you're unpredictable to ball. Willow explains that it's Buffy's birthday and that they're throwing her a surprise party, but with a shy smile says he could come as her date. He agrees that he will and she walks away. Both of them are smiling. Xander and Cordelia are at Cordelia's locker talking about the party. Xander says they're both going and maybe they should go together. And Cordelia says, why? And Xander says, maybe they should admit they're dating. So again, we get some conflict here that fills the audience in in case they have not been watching every episode. And Cordelia says to him, "Groping in a broom closet isn't dating. It's not dating until the guy spends money." Xander says, "Fine, I'll spend. We'll grope. Whatever." But he thinks it's ridiculous that they are hiding from their friends. And being very Cordelia like, she says, "Of course he wants to tell everyone. He has nothing to be ashamed of." Xander uh, has had enough, so he walks off into Giles and Buffy and Jenny also walk over all of them sit at one of the ever-present tables in Sunnydale where people gather in Sunnydale High and Giles comments that Buffy looks a little tired she tells him about her dream that Drusilla killed Angel and that it really freaked her out he asks if she thinks it's important and she's not sure so he tells her you know they should be careful but not to worry unduly all of this the Willow and Oz banter, the Cordelia and Sander sparring, even Buffy talking about seizing the day. All of these things could make us think that we are in one of the lighter episodes. It's fun so far and all of this makes this turn, which is going to happen in a second, to the end of the world aspect so much more striking and visceral. We switch to the factory warehouse where Spike and Drusilla are living. This is the inciting incident or story spark in the Drusilla side of the story and it could also serve as an episode one quarter turn because it's about 12 and a half minutes in and our episodes are usually about 44 minutes long. We see the vampire with the glasses, Dalton, uh, the one who we've seen before, stealing the Dulac cross from the tomb and struggling to translate the manuscript that ultimately led to Drusilla's cure. He says he has Drusilla's package. Spike, who is in a wheelchair and his face is all scarred, seems rather down. He asks, Is he sure Drusilla wants to have a party? Maybe they should do it in Vienna. He doesn't like this place. Sunnydale is cursed. But she says her gatherings are always perfect. She has good games for everyone, he'll see. A moment later, though, she loses it because the flowers are all wrong. She starts shredding them and um, almost shrieking. Spike, in a very calm voice, says, let's try something different with the flowers then. And she calms down and switches to her presents, asking if she can open them and saying, can I, can I? He says, just a peek. When she looks in an oblong box, he asks if she likes it, and she says, it reeks of death, and it will be the best party ever, because it will be the last and a commercial break. So again, a nice hook, a nice moment. We don't know what's in the box, but we now know Drusilla is having a party, and it's her birthday as well as Buffy's, and they are planning something that has dire consequences. When we come back from the commercial break, Buffy is talking to Joyce about taking a trip to the mall. Joyce is taking her shopping for her birthday and asks Buffy if 17 feels any different than 16. So we know that today is her official birthday. And Buffy says now that her mom mentions it, she does feel more responsible now. And she wants to talk about getting her driver's license and reminds Joyce that she promised they could talk about it again when Buffy turned 17. Joyce is skeptical. She's holding a plate and she says, Do you really think you're ready, Buffy? And drops the plate. It breaks just like in Buffy's dream. We then switch to Jenny Calendar in her classroom. There was no commercial break there, but notice that we have a nice end of scene hook with this repetition from Buffy's dream making us think Angel is in danger specifically from Drusilla and instead of immediately picking up with Drew or with Buffy going to Giles or to Angel we switch to Jenny so that interest that desire to know how that plays out keeps us through this scene which initially might not seem that important. So a man in old fashioned clothes and enters Jenny's classroom startling her. She eventually calls him Uncle. This actor died in 2005. His name is Vincent Schiavelli. IMDb says he was selected in 1997 by Vanity Fair as one of the best character actors in America and he has made over 120 film and television appearances. I am not at all surprised. Um, I feel like I always see him in this sort of ominous part but he may very well do other types. He he says the elder woman has been watching the signs jenny says the curse still holds nothing's wrong but the uncle says the elder woman says his pain is lessening she can feel it and jenny hesitantly says there is a girl he says to jenny with great intensity how could she let this happen and she promises that angel still suffers and he even makes amends he saved her her life. Uncle yells at her and says how can she forget that Angel killed the most beloved member of their tribe and vengeance demands that his pain is eternal as theirs is. If this girl gives him a m- one minute of happiness, it's one minute too much. And he reminds her or berates her. He says you think you're Jenny Calendar now and reminds her she is Yana of the kaldrash people and the time for watching is past. It must end now and Jenny should do what she must to take her from him and she says she will see to it. At 17 minutes 42 seconds in, Buffy is finishing telling Giles about her dream. So note that last scene. We have a wonderful hook at the end, this great revelation about Jenny being from the tribe of the young woman that Angel killed that resulted in the curse that gave him back his soul, and now she's saying she will separate Angel and Buffy. We then switch to a A less dramatic scene, which is, you know, talking about Buffy's dreams and what they should do about it. Not quite as exciting, but... We are tense, and there's all this conflict going, so it keeps us engaged, along with some great dialogue. Xander and Willow come into the library. They're excited, saying happy birthday, Buffy, and Buffy is not enthused. Giles tries to reassure her. He says dreams aren't prophecies. She can still protect Angel, and he reminds her that she has subverted the dream she had that the master rose, and she stopped it. And Xander says you ground his bones to make your bread. And Buffy says, that's true, except for the bread part. But she wants to stay a step ahead and Giles says, absolutely. He'll read up on Drusilla. Buffy should go to class and come back and meet Giles at the library that evening. After she leaves, Willow and Xander are sad. Willow says, so much for the surprise party and she bought little hats and everything. But Giles says, they are having a party tonight. Xander says, looks like Mr. Caution Man, but the sound he makes is funny. And Giles explains that the party should go ahead, though he won't be wearing a little hat. That Buffy and Angel might be in danger, but they have been before and they will be again. And he says, One thing I've learned in my tenure here on the Hellmouth is that there is no good time to relax. But Buffy's turning 17 just this once and she deserves a party. I feel like these words from Giles are such good advice for life and for dealing with stress. This is part of what I love about the show because while most of us are not dealing with life or death stakes day in and day out, there are significant stresses and sometimes terrible things do happen and it's a reminder to still take those moments and still celebrate parts of life and not try to put everything aside, everything good and fun aside. Willow says Angel is coming to the party anyway, so Buffy can protect him and have cake. We next see Buffy walking in a dark hall at school, because like locker rooms, the halls in Sunnydale are pretty dark in the evening. Jenny surprises her and says there's a change of plans. Um, Giles had to go home and get a book, and uh, Buffy shouldn't meet him at the library. They're meeting somewhere else. Giles gave her directions. She's not sure exactly where. Buffy comments on the oddity of Giles needing to get a book because there aren't enough of them in the library. But she doesn't seem suspicious. As they go down the dark alley, Buffy sees vampires and a truck and she tells Jenny to stop. Jenny seems worried and says, maybe don't get out. Buffy says, sorry, sacred duty, yada, yada, yada. She approaches the vampires, and we have Dalton again, the vamp with the glasses, and she says every time she sees him, he's stealing something. He runs, other vampires get out and attack Buffy. All of this was a nice use of misdirection because we're thinking Jenny is putting her plan in place to separate Buffy and Angel and she was actually just getting Buffy to the bronze for Buffy's party. Now we see that as Buffy fights, the others are inside the bronze. A few of them are wearing hats, there are balloons, um, and they're hiding around the pool table so Buffy won't see them when she comes in. Um, I don't know how they got the bronze on a weeknight for a party, but somehow they did. Angel is saying, Where is she? And Willow says, I think I hear her coming. And we're hearing the sounds of Buffy fighting. Eventually, the last vampire and Buffy end up on the stage of the bronze and she dusts him. We are getting to the midpoint of the episode and to the one-quarter twist in the two-episode arc. At 21 minutes 43 seconds in, just after Buffy has dusted the vampire, Cordelia pops out from behind the pool table and yells, Surprise! Even though everyone else is visible, so at that point Buffy is not really surprised. I love, though that the episode title comes in right here, almost at the midpoint of the episode. Buffy is very happy that they all planned this party for her. Willow asks Oz if he's okay, and Oz says... Hey, did everybody see that guy just turn to dust? Xander says, "Yeah, vampires are real. A lot of them live in Sunnydale." Willow will fill you in. Willow tells Oz she knows it's hard to accept at first, but Oz says, "Actually, it explains a lot." And I love that Oz is the one person who doesn't even temporarily deny this or reframe it. Even more so, it's not so much that he doesn't do it here because everyone else is saying, "Yes, we saw it," but clearly along the way he hasn't made up uh, reasons for what happened the way we saw Cordelia early on saying, oh, they were a gang. And Oz also hasn't forgotten. He clearly filed away these unusual happenings in his brain as things that he couldn't explain yet. And now he has an explanation. So he feels better. Jenny comes in carrying an oblong box and says the vampires left this behind. This is the one quarter twist in a second for our two episode arc. The one-quarter twist usually comes in a quarter way through any story, sometimes a little bit later in television, and it spins the story in a new direction, but comes from outside of the protagonist. And we definitely have that here when Buffy opens this box. Before that, though, I am going to take my own break. (laughs) If you find the story structure and other plot elements and character issues I talk about helpful, you may want to check out the free story structure template. There's a link in the show notes. Or check out my books on story structure. Um, One is Super Simple Story Structure. The other is The One Year Novelist, which gives you a plan for plotting and writing your novel in a year or less. Those are available in paperback on amazon or in ebook form wherever you like to buy ebooks kindle kobo nook google play or apple books and there are links in the show notes or you can do an internet search for the book titles and l m lily l i double l y if you have questions or comments about the show, you can connect on Twitter at LisaMLilly, hashtag BuffyStory, or you can email me Lisa at LisaLily.com. And we're back at that one-quarter twist. Buffy opens that box and inside it is a long arm clad in dark armor or cloth and a black glove. It bursts out and grabs Buffy by the throat and chokes her. She cannot get it off her neck. That is 23 minutes, 6 seconds in of a roughly 87, 88 minute story and we go to a commercial break. So another amazing hook, because unlike other times when Buffy is attacked, she genuinely looks here as if she is not able to fight back or get that hand off her neck. When we come back from the commercial, we pick up right where we left off, so another example of a break in the middle of a scene. Angel grabs the arm, helps Buffy get it off, and he slams it back in the box and closes it. Xander says Clear Hellmouth's answer to what do you get the slayer that has everything. Angel says it can't be, she wouldn't, and Xander says what? Vamp version of snakes in a can or do you care to share? Angel explains that this arm is part of the judge and he and Giles talk back and forth about it. It's an old legend before Angel's time. A demon meant to rid the world from the plague of humanity. Uh, He separates the righteous and the wicked and burns the righteous. Giles says the judge um, the story is the judge couldn't be killed an army was sent against him and most of them died but they finally dismembered the judge which couldn't kill him but his body parts were buried scattered all over the world an angel says Drusilla is just crazy enough to reassemble the judge and bring forth Armageddon, at which point Cordelia says, is anybody else going to have cake? This use of mixing humor with drama and um, great danger is done so well here because it both gives the audience a tiny break from the intensity so that we don't have just that one note danger, 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 And that break by doing that highlights how serious this is. Jenny says, Angel's the only one who can do it, and he has to take the arm to the remotest region possible. And he agrees. Buffy says, um, She can do it. And Jenny says, No, Buffy can't disappear from school for months. And Buffy is appalled at the idea of Angel being gone months and says, Why take so long? Angel says, He'll have to get a cargo ship. He can't fly. he can't guard against the daylight and there's no other choice this threat is so serious he has to go right now tonight and Buffy is saying but it's my birthday and Jenny gets between them and says she'll drive Angel to the docks. We switch to Drusilla, who is angry at Dalton. She stamps on his glasses. She tells him to make a wish and puts her two fingers out to jab toward his eyes, saying she's going to blow out the candles because he has lost this box. Spike says, um, maybe give Dalton a chance to get it back. He's the only one they have with half a brain. And Dalton, sweating, says he swears he'll get the box. She just jabs her fingers toward his eyes, but stops at the last second and says, okay, she's all fun and games again. She pats his head, puts his broken glasses back on him, and tells him to hurry back. At the docks, Angel is carrying the box. He and Buffy stop to say goodbye, and that he'll be back. And she says when. It could be six months. It could be a year. They don't know if he'll come back. And she says if you haven't noticed, someone pretty much always wants us dead. Angel says we can't know Buffy, nobody can, that's just the deal. This too is part of the show's overall philosophy and probably a philosophy that weaves through all of Whedon's shows that you never know what's coming next and you just have to do your best with what you're facing. Angel gives Buffy a a cloud of ring. He takes it off his finger and says he was going to give it to her for her birthday and says that his people, before he was changed, exchanged it as a sign of devotion. If you turn the heart toward you, it means you belong to someone. And he says like this, showing the one he is wearing. They kiss after he tells her to put her ring on. This so reminds me of Romeo and Juliet. We'll see Joss Whedon use Shakespeare quite a bit and call back to Shakespeare plots. And Romeo and Juliet had that secret wedding. And my, uh, my sophomore English teacher made a big point when we watched West Side Story to see how it compared to Romeo and Juliet, how those two characters, Tony and Maria, have this sort of pretend wedding where she dresses up in a wedding dress and they pretend tend to say vows. I'm sure my teacher's point was to say, see how serious this is? This doesn't mean you should just have sex with the first person you think you've fallen for. I do find it really interesting here that Buffy uses this as well, this wedding sort of symbolism of exchanging the rings belonging to one another. I see it here not as my high school English teacher uh, jumping in and saying, oh, you need to have this big commitment before sex, but to, again, raise the stakes and show how important this relationship is to the two of them and make it more devastating when we get to the consequences so just as angel starts to say i love you he says i vampires interrupt this is 30 minutes in and buffy yells at angel the box because he has set it down and now one of um I was going to say one of the vampires, Dalton, grabbed it. Angel wrestles Dalton. um, The other vampires fight Buffy. One of them throws Buffy into the water. I think this is supposed to be the ocean. Angel abandons Dalton to dive in after Buffy. It shows how committed Angel is to Buffy. Uh, Later, I always wonder, though, does he think she can't swim? I mean, she's the slayer. So is he really worried that Buffy's going to drown? On the other hand, the one time Buffy died for just a minute, as she says, was when she drowned. So perhaps that's part of it too. But I think it also is meant to show that in the moment, Angel chooses Buffy, even at the risk of putting the whole world in peril. And even though a second ago he was ready to leave to protect the world. In way this serves as a three-quarter turn of the episode so we're not even at the midpoint of our two-episode arc but Our single episode here keeps moving in part because we have these significant turns. And this is one because now we have shifted from not just knowledge of this plot and seeing what happens with Buffy and Angel, but to how to stop assembly of the judge. Because now we know Spike and Drew have this other piece that was so key to them. In the library, Xander, Willow, and Giles are waiting for Angel and Buffy to get back and researching and Giles is worried because he thinks they should have returned by now Um, not Angel they're not expecting him back he thinks Buffy should have returned Willow says maybe Buffy needed a moment, and she feels terrible for Buffy. But Xander goes into this, um, I guess you would call it this daydream or imagining. He says, you know, it wouldn't work out anyway. And just think about what it'll be like in the future if they're settled down and angels sitting with a big blood belly in front of the TV and dreaming of the time when Buffy thought the whole creature of the night thing was cool. And then Xander will arrive and take her out for a prime rib dinner. Willow tries to stop him. And he says something like, wait, did I tell you about the part where she cries? Buffy has come in, which is why Willow is trying to halt Xander's uh, flow of words there. But she doesn't really notice. She says, they got the box. And Giles is extremely concerned. He says the judge's touch can burn humanity out of a person, that only a true creature of evil can survive. No one else can. And they have also learned that no weapon forged can kill him. So Buffy says, we need to keep him from being assembled. Everyone does what they call a round robin, which is each of our friends calling their parents and saying they're staying at one of the other's houses. We get a brief and very quick glimpse of Xander's home life because he calls home and um, says, you know, mom, and he says, it's me, Xander. Xander doesn't have any siblings, so the fact that his mom didn't know it was him by his voice gives us just this hint through humor of Xander's backstory. During the night, as they are looking through different books, Willow pauses to say how amazing and cool Oz was about everything. Xander says he's over it clearly a little tired of hearing about Oz and she says he's just jealous because he didn't have a date for the party and he says no I sure didn't. Buffy falls asleep over some books in Giles' office Angel says she hasn't been sleeping well. She's been tossing and turning. And Giles gives him a look. And Angel says, she told me because of her dreams. And Buffy is, in fact, dreaming at the moment. This is a nice uh, transition from the scene in the library to Buffy dreaming. That word helps us transition into Buffy's dream. We see Drusilla's party at the factory. There are candles and flowers. And Buffy is walking in a long walk white dress so we have more wedding-like imagery. Buffy sees the box and as she is going toward it, Drusilla appears and says, now, now, hands off my presents. And she is holding Angel and she slashes his throat. Buffy screams. Uh, She's back in the library and Angel says, I'm right here and holds her. It's unclear whether she is slipping into another dream or whether that's part of the dream because we switch back to Drusilla's party and it looks exactly the same as in Buffy's dream, but we'll find out as it goes on that this is a real scene. Uh, Dalton is at the punch bowl. Drusilla is dancing. Spike brings her the last box of the Judge. And there are tons of vampires around. They set the last one on. It is the judge's head. There are flashing lights all around. And the pieced together wooden form of the judge. It opens up and the judge emerges. He is giant. Um, He is blue. Which sounds funny saying it, but he's pretty ominous looking. And Drusilla says, he's perfect, my darling. Just what I wanted. And we go to a commercial break so again that hook the judge has emerged and once again that break was in the middle of a scene so we come back and the judge looks at Spike and Drusilla kind of scornfully and says you two stink of humanity you share affection and jealousy and Spike says, what of it? And reminds the judge that they're the ones who brought him here. Drusilla asks if he wants a party favor. The judge gestures toward poor Dalton and says, uh, bring him to me. Spike questions him, saying, what's all this bringing stuff? He thought the judge could just zap people. But the judge explains he needs to gather his full strength to return. He, he basically needs to be fed. They bring him Dalton, who is Burnt up, and Drew says, Do it again, do it again. So, we have established through conflict why the judge can't immediately go out and just burn all of humanity. Back in the library, Buffy says she knows where Spike and Drusilla are at the factory. She says she and Angel will go there and do recon. The others should check the docks and airports and anywhere else the judge could be coming in, or pieces of the judge could be coming in. to stop it so this is how we know that um, Buffy did not see the last scene in her dream because she doesn't know the judge is assembled Buffy and Angel go to the factory they are in the area up above almost like a catwalk and they look down and they see the candles and the punch bowl and Buffy says I saw this Then they see the judge walking around. Their eyes widen. The judge senses them and then looks up and sees them. Again, I always wonder, did they think no one would notice them? As long as they just stayed up on the catwalk, they would be invisible. They don't seem to make any attempt to hide, so it doesn't seem like a great plan. But I doubt I thought that the first time I saw it. And this is an example of how when there is great emotional weight to a story and when you are so invested in it as the audience sometimes you're willing to just kind of whistle past things in the plot that don't really hold together Um, because we really want this scene with Buffy and Angel and the judge we we want to see what happens and the rest of the story is so fantastic. So I don't, I don't recommend um, making a plan to be like, ah, oh, the reader won't notice this plot hole because there, there always will be some who do. And if there are too many, uh, it's going to undercut the experience. You don't want your reader thinking, wait a minute, that makes no sense, right at a crucial part of the story. Here, though, I, I felt like I had to comment on it. Having stepped back to watch it specifically to go through it from a story perspective, but I am pretty sure it worked really well for me the first time. And it doesn't really diminish anything for me anytime I rewatch. Buffy and Angel try to run. Vampires overtake them and bring them down to the ground level near the judge. Drusilla says, I only dreamed you'd come looking at Buffy. So we know that Drusilla, as Buffy dreams of Drusilla, Drusilla sometimes dreams of Buffy. So they share this prophetic dreaming. Angel says, leave her alone. We get some great spike in this scene. (laughs) He says, yeah, that'll work. Now say pretty, please the judge wants Buffy and Drew says it's chilling isn't it she's so full of good intentions and Angel says take me instead and Spike says you're not clear on the concept there's no instead just first and second Drusilla wants Buffy to be first so Angel can watch her die as the judge approaches, Buffy kicks him, and he staggers back a bit. An angel who, during this dialogue back and forth, has been scanning the ceiling, he grabs this chain which seems to be part of a pulley and pulls it, and all these TVs and light fixtures drop down on the judge. I'm not quite sure why they were all—all all these TVs were chained up because they're not in boxes; they're just TVs were chained up around the factory. But I like to think uh, as we'll see Spike really loves television so maybe this is an early example of how he had TVs all over the factory. Anyway um, Angel and Buffy run The vampires go after them. They go down into those tunnels under Sunnydale. Eventually, Buffy and Angel climb up a ladder and get out into a park somewhere through a manhole cover. It's pouring rain. They are getting drenched. And they go to Angel's apartment which is underground. So I guess we assume Drusilla and Spike don't know where Angel lived. I find that interesting. Jarla certainly found it easy enough to figure out where he lived in season one. But I i guess we have established Spike doesn't know because he needed Willie to get Angel to him in an earlier episode. Anyway, uh, this another example of something when I initially watched and when I rewatched just for the fun of it doesn't bother me at all this doing this podcast this is the first time I even really thought about that Angel is going to get Buffy dry clothes he turns his back while she's about to change but here's her kind of gasp she's in a little bit of pain she got some sort of uh, cut and he sits down behind her on the bed and he looks at her shoulder and says no it's already closed up she's fine she has taken her sweater off so she has like a tank top or camisole under it as he's touching her shoulder, there is so much tension and chemistry between them. She leans back into him and says she almost lost him today. And she feels like if she lost him and she doesn't finish, she says we can't be sure of anything. So we are moving to the. The midpoint commitment where our protagonist throws caution to the wind and commits to the quest. And remember, we also sometimes see a reversal. So we can see a commitment or a major reversal for the protagonist or both. And we are going to see both here. Angel and Buffy are committing to this relationship. Angel says, I love you. I try not to, but I can't stop. And she says, me too. I can't either meaning she can't stop either. They kiss, and as it becomes more intense, we have the Buffy-Angel theme music. Angel says, Buffy, maybe we shouldn't. She says, don't, just kiss me. And the camera pans away as they sink onto his bed. That is 43 minutes in. It is our midpoint commitment and part of the climax of this episode episode and then immediately almost immediately we get a reversal and we could see this as the falling action of the episode because first we have this really nice just second of them sleeping curled together covered by blankets then angel sits and he gasps in terrible pain and staggers outside into the alley. We have um, jarring music and lightning and angel screams Buffy inside though she is sleeping she doesn't hear him and he shouts her name out in the alley again and it's to be continued so this is our reversal for Buffy and Angel and also it is um, a game changer so this is an example for this episode we actually wrapped up the episode main plot which was Buffy and Angel what will happen with Buffy and Angel's relationship it reached to the point where they do make love and they are closer than ever and then we get the game changer it isn't a cliffhanger although it also is because we don't know what happens so it is for the next episode but it changes everything we have finished out the plot And this changes everything going forward, though we don't know how. Because we don't know how, that's what makes it also a cliffhanger. What an amazing way to end the episode. When I looked it up on Wikipedia, it said that the two episodes aired back to back. So one night, I think Buffy was on Mondays, and then it aired on Tuesday. I don't remember that. But what I do remember is after Innocence, I believe there was a very, very long um, break, maybe some kind of a... um, Uh, the winter hiatus that the shows often do and it was awful waiting during that time for the next episode so there is no dvd commentary for this episode but there is an interview with joss whedon uh it doesn't go too in depth next monday when i talk about innocence there is both an interview and a scene by scene commentary so i will have a ton i'm assuming on that but there are a few interesting things in this interview he talks about this being the classical uh, star-crossed romance vampire slayer vampire and that he knew from the start it wouldn't be easy and he says quote that would be where all the fun was He also noted something that I had wondered about in earlier episodes about these hints that Jenny maybe couldn't be trusted. I had wondered if it was always the plan that she was part of this clan that lost their favorite when Angel killed her. And uh, in the interview he said that no, that wasn't originally the plan for Jenny, that they didn't know that she would turn out to be from that clan. And he said he tries to leave things open for the characters. So so uh, they can do what they they need to or what seems most intriguing when they get there this is similar to um, the idea of world building particularly in fantasy but really in any story you are building a world and if it's installments the question is do you try to figure out all the elements of the world build the world in advance and then tell each story within those limits or do you create just as much of the world as you need and then create more Aspects to it as you go on with your story, as you go to your next novel or your next novella or short story or movie. I typically, while I tend to plot. Particular novels in advance and know my major plot points. When it comes to world building, both um, when I did The Awakening, which is more in the fantasy genre, and with my mystery series, I tend to do it more like what Joss Whedon is saying here. I build what I need, and I sow some some seeds that could go various places for the future, but I don't necessarily build out certain aspects until I get there. And I find that more fun. I feel like it gives me more freedom, but it is really, you know, what what works for you i hope you will stick around for spoilers if you don't thank you so much for listening i hope you will come back next monday when we'll talk about innocence the second part of this two-part storyline i feel like these two episodes are where buffy truly becomes what it is it's been amazing so far but i feel like this just takes it to a new level And we are back for spoilers, starting with the very beginning in that dream when Drusilla dusts Angel and he reaches for Buffy and we see those two rings fall off Angel's finger. I don't think I ever before noticed that as part of the dream. So that's really nice, very subtle in foreshadowing the later scene in that very episode where he gives her the ring, but after Angel is gone, after she had to kill him, we will see this um, moment with the rings come back. So it becomes very symbolic. We'll also see the Cloud Ring used when Buffy meets another character, um Hope, Scott Hope in season three and he brings her a cloud of ring of course not knowing this history and the reaction Buffy has to it which triggers some emotional growth for her and also tells Giles how disturbed she still is. Those lines Buffy says surprise me and Angel says okay I will. It is so telling for the rest of the season when he says okay I will. Of course, he doesn't mean what happens. He, he doesn't have control over turning evil again. And yet the rest of the season is dealing with that surprise that total unknown about Angel. On the lighter side Buffy enjoys talking about Buffy getting a driver's license. This theme of Buffy and driving kind of continues in the background it's most key in band candy where Joyce does let Buffy have the keys when she is um, under the influence of the candy when Joyce is so she's like yeah here's the keys take them. Buffy bangs up the car through no fault of her own by the way and after that Buffy doesn't drive I have to think that is something that the show creators and writers just felt would be useful because we don't we don't really want to watch Buffy driving around it's so much more dramatic to have her running in a way that her driving somewhere just wouldn't seem to have that same effect Jenny and her uncle, Jenny says that Angel still suffers and he even makes amends. And in season three, we will see the episode Amends, which is all about Angel's past and to which Jenny, in a way, serves as a guide. Made me wonder if that was planned. I tend to think probably not and that it instead that it grew out of this But maybe, maybe it was. Maybe they had season three planned by then. Also, the uncle says if that girl gives him one minute of happiness, it's one minute too much. I knew that the uncle commented on Buffy and Angel and that Angel should not have happiness, but I didn't realize the one minute of happiness was stressed there. I love the judge's comment on Drusilla and Spike, how they share affection and jealousy, and he's scornful of that because it's very human. I think one of the reasons I like Spike so much and fans tend to like him is he is not cowed by anyone and he's just like, what of it? Like, of course we do. He's not going to let the judge intimidate him. And we will see with Spike and Drusilla how this affection and jealousy weaves through their relationship Uh, While Spike wears his heart on his sleeve more, so we feel he's more invested, that he's more the one vulnerable to jealousy, there is some from Drew as well. So later we'll see Spike is jealous of Angel and Drusilla, which is part of what leads him to team up with Buffy. And we'll find out in season three, uh, Lover's Walk, uh, Drew starts seeing a chaos demon, which is what sparks them to break up. But the underlying cause is Drew feeling that that Buffy is too much a part of I guess Spike's psyche so you definitely see that affection and jealousy we've already seen it but we will continue to see it through their relationship I also like that we see that Spike was not so enthused about the judge throughout he was hesitant about this party maybe they shouldn't have it and you know he's not he's not thrilled with the judge from the beginning he starts out by saying hey remember who brought you here and I think these things foreshadow so Spike at the end saying, you know, he doesn't want to end the world. He's not He's not really the guy who's about bringing forth Armageddon and sucking the world into hell. He likes being a vampire. He likes doing violence. But he doesn't want the end of the world. He loves the world. Xander's... His imagining about Buffy and Angel in the future, his fantasy, that's the world uh, word I was looking for, his sort of fantasy about Buffy and Angel being so unhappy. I was so struck by this angel with a blood belly in front of the TV because in season six, Hell's Bells, when Xander has this vision of his future married to Anya, his nightmare vision, Xander is in front of the TV with a beer not able to work, apparently injured in fighting with Buffy, and uh, it's this very dark picture of marriage and really wraps in Xander's fears about it. One foreshadowing for the second part for Innocence, Giles says of the judge burning humanity out of people, a true creature of evil can survive but no one else. So this is so chilling because we know the judge will be unable to cause any harm to Angel. Angel is completely, when he becomes jealous, completely impervious to the judge. Where Spike and Drusilla, for instance, I don't believe we ever see them touch the judge. They are, there is humanity in them. Finally, Angel shouting Buffy's name, not just once, but multiple times. This is echoed in the episode later in the season. I should have looked up the name where there's the Sadie Hawkins, Dance and Angel and Buffy are taken over by these ghosts that inhabit them from the past who had that murder-suicide and the teacher... James loved her and he shot her and then shot himself and he's saying how can you forgive me this was terrible and she says she did forgive him and she understood and that she died saying his name and here we have Angel dying um, his human side his soul dying as he is gasping Buffy's name some of the most powerful storytelling in all of Buffy and in all of any stories I have read and consumed. So we'll end on that note. I hope you will come back next Monday for Innocence. And thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show and would like to help see that it continues, please consider writing a review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts or telling a friend about the show. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC. Copyright 2020.